So I have an NES Mini arrived, finally arrived. Hmm. Mm. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't. I'm not sure how to comment to that on on the show, but you're very lucky, Mike. So, um, h- how is it? Tell us. Tell us. So there's there's a few strange things about the NES Mini. Um, one being that and this seems to be a Nintendo trend. It ships with a mini USB cable for power, but no plug mm. adapter. No, why? So you have to provide, yeah. And they says it says it's got a little <laughs> piece of paper in there that says like uh, you can buy this, like, and it tells you where you can buy it if you want to do it. They did this with the 3DS, right? 3DS had no power adapter at all. Um, now, as you can imagine, as being a man who likes technology, I have like cables and plugs and stuff for days. But what I ended up doing, which I'd never thought to do before, um, I've plugged the USB cable into my TV. So my TV powers the NES Mini, and then it- oh yeah, very clever. Yeah, uh, kind of like the Chromecast. Exactly. I, I was think. very surprised yeah. that they shipped a HDMI cable with this, which they did, right? Because it just feels like if you're gonna stop giving people things to plug stuff in with, you may as well stop giving them HDMI cables as well. But luckily enough, they did right. that. Um, mm. it, it, I think this is just the idea of Nintendo just trying to find ways to make their stuff as cheap as possible. Now, there is a really weird design flaw with the NES Mini that many have commented on. The controller cable is way too short. Like, it's extremely yeah, short. Yeah, I saw that. So what you have to do is you have to bring the NES Mini, clo- the, the actual hardware, like the, the box, closer to you when you play. Um, this isn't really an issue for me because the box is so small, you just drag the box. Like, I just bring it to the edge of my desk and then I can play it. I think that they were trying to, like, evoke the original game console to closely mm, you think so when the <laughs> nes just cheap uh, no, I, just, I think that they made a mistake right like in, in making these too short that i you can, can correct me if i'm wrong but i think that the the original nes controller cables weren't massively long and i think it was because we used to sit closer to the tv then because the tvs were smaller right that doesn't yeah. work now um but it's easy to move because the actual nes mini box weighs like nothing it's nothing. I actually don't think there's anything inside this box. Like, it's so tiny. I feel like they probably just have this tiny little hardware in there. Um, but it's cute. It's a cute little thing. They probably put all the hardware in the controller. They, you know what? They probably could have. I I actually think that the the box itself is not needed. If they could have just shipped you a controller that connected via HDMI, <laughs> you would have been fine. You remember, like, that Atari VCS thing? Yeah, they totally could have done that. They did one of those joysticks, didn't they? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I'm pleased that they did it this way because it's, I don't know, it's cuter to me. I'm looking at it right now and it's like it's just like a nice little desk toy, if anything. So I booted it up and I played some of Super Mario 2 because I think it's one of the weirdest and most wonderful video games ever made. Um, it's just so bizarre. Like, it doesn't fit any of Mario. You know, there's a whole big story about it. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes to this. Uh, that I watched this great YouTube video once about Super Mario 2 and why it's so weird. Um and it reminded me of something that I'm always reminded of whenever I play old NES games. I mean, they're not that good now. <laughs> you <know>? Yeah. <laughs> it's like... Either they're not really good now or they're super difficult. Like, I yeah. tried to play Super Mario Bros. 3 again and I, I just suck at it. Like, I'm yep. terrible. And whereas I can pick up Super Mario World on on the Super Nintendo yep. and I'm still pretty good at it. And the game is not that difficult. I feel like NES games are either just they didn't age very well, so we mm-hmm. remember them fondly, at least a lot of people do, because, you know, memories and stuff. Or 
they are still great games, but they're made for an era when people could invest like, I don't know, 12 hours a day playing video games, and they were super difficult. Or maybe we just became dumber over time. Like, we, we, we don't know how to play difficult games anymore. Could be also a theory. That, that could be. So it's like... The, 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 I agree with you. They are hard, and these games are hard. I think they're made to be hard. And one of the things that makes them easier with this type of stuff is you you save your progress. Like when you when you go yeah. when you quit yeah. the game and go back to the home screen, it keeps that saved for you. And they have like the mm. NES Mini's hardware, like the software. It allows you to save multiple save points in games, so you can just choose which game you want to go back into. It takes you back to where you were, which obviously. That wasn't a thing with the original Nintendo. But it's like... My nostalgia for some of these games is is way greater than they actually are. Which is mostly fine. You know, like, that's okay that it's like that. But it's just... it. I'm just reminded of it every time where it's like... Super Mario 2, like, I will jump in and maybe play it for 20 minutes. But I'm not going to sit there and play <laughs> it for an hour. Like, I'm not yeah. going to get that much out of it. Um, but it's it. Yeah. But look, for the games that you get, and for this thing being like fifty dollars, if you can actually buy it, um, I think it's worth it. It's worth it for like a a time where I might pick up my iPhone and play an iPhone game. I can now like go and play Zelda, the original Zelda. Do you know what I mean? It's just like a fun little thing. But I'm not going to sit and play this for four hours like no, I no, did. I get it. You know? I get it. Would you think that the fifty bucks or whatever it was? was worth spending over and above the experience of playing it on an emulator, say. Yeah, because the hardware makes it more fun. There is something about playing it on the original controller that that I find more endearing to actually playing the game. So let's say you had the original controller and you had that plugged into um, a PC or a Mac running an emulator. Would you still prefer to have the little box? Yeah, I think so. It's purely nostalgia, Why? right? Like it's it's yeah, it's yeah. when we were talking about this the first time. There's just something more fun about playing this game on this little box that looks like the old game than just playing it on my Mac. You know, I I I, I feel like that there's just something more to it than that. I think it's also because as human beings we deeply we we like having physical stuff around and looking and touching and and it's kind of reassuring to know that it's not a bunch of files on your mac but you actually have a mini console which is also cute and you can touch it you can move it and it reminds you even just by looking at it by touching the controller it reminds you of a different time Mm -hmm. and i feel like you don't get even if you plug a controller into a computer it breaks the illusion whereas with these new consoles like these mini consoles which are also based on emulators i I mean I, i saw someone say nintendo actually is using the same technique of you know stuff like open emu on on os 10 on actually mac os for example uh but it doesn't matter because it's um it doesn't break the illusion as much as an emulator on your computer or your iPhone, whatever, does. And I feel like that's important, you know? And I'm, I'm still not sure if I'm going to buy one of these. But I also, I wanted to comment on what you said about I can play this for like 10 minutes, for 20 minutes. I cannot play this for an hour or for, you know, several days. I feel like sometimes I need to play an old game 
for just a few minutes. It's almost as if I, I need a quick fix. I don't know. I know I won't be able to play Zelda Link to the Past for a week. Sometimes I feel like I need to pick up one of these old games for like two hours. It's a very short amount of time and then put it down again. I don't know why, but it happens. And I feel like if I'm going to buy an NES Mini, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be like you. I'm going to play these games for like 20 minutes to remember what they're like. Remember that, I, that I'm terrible <laughs> at those games or maybe the games didn't age very well. And then I'm going to stop playing. So I'm debating whether I want to buy one or not. I I just this is just one of those things where like relative to gaming these days this is a cheap system. You know, was it like $50 or something, something like that, right? Like it's it's not expensive. Uh I think it's it's just a nice toy to have. This is a good stocking stuffer. Um Super Mario Brothers 3 is one of my favorite games of all time and I plan to play a lot of that. Like I want to see if I c- I actually want to see if I can complete it for the first time which I've never done. Uh and so I have this little thing here now and it's I don't know. Like I imagine it in a, in a time where like I want a video game snack like this will be what I pick up to play that with. But it's mm-hmm. it, uh, for me more than anything like just as a uh nostalgia thing it's nice to have the nes sitting on my desk it's just nice it's my first gaming console like i, I like it uh, i don't think it's worth like the 300 dollars that people are paying for it on ebay right now because nintendo either can't stock these things or is taking the wii approach with this which i think is maybe more likely they didn't you know they're not doing anything wrong they're creating scarcity that's what i think they're doing here i think i think that they are creating scarcity with this box. More people are interested in buying it now that there's lines outside of Walmart trying to pick one up. That's what I think. Yeah. yeah. Anywho, let's let's yeah. um let's go back to talking about what we were talking about last time with uh, dev kits and hardware. But I think I want to ask Shahid, you spent a lot of time last week talking about the MacBook Pro and whether it's the right machine for you or not. Have you bought one? Nope. You're not going to get it? Because I know that you went and took a look at one, right? Or you were t- tempted by one in some way? I walked into the Apple store in Regent Street. And you were right, by the way. That place is amazing. And uh, they had the 13-inch and the 15-inch on plinths inside mm-hmm. kind of like a perspex or glass cylinder. And even through that cylinder, the screen was just amazing. Way better than... Um, my my current MacBook Pro, which is a late 2013 15 inch. I don't know. It was it was either way brighter or something. They do say 500 nits or something like that, sure. which is about 150 nits more than even some of the very best uh, PC laptop displays. So it's extraordinarily bright. I really like the look of the touch bar. I was amazed at how slim it looked. But you know, once I was away from there. And had time to think about it. Because as soon as I got back, it's like, yeah, yeah, got to have one now, got to have one. Went back through the thinking process. I mean, yes, it would be a great way of replacing my late 2013 MacBook Pro. But I don't know how much more I'm getting for it. Apart from the fact that it would be replacing a a creaking machine that is literally beginning to creak now. Because I've used this one so much. (laughs) Literally? (laughs) Literally, yeah. Because you know how unibodies just don't creak, right? That was the thing. I, the, the way I used to sell Macs to, to my colleagues and friends was I'd pick, well, um, you know, MacBooks. I'd pick them up 
by one corner. And I'd say, can you hear that? And they'd say, no. I said, exactly. Then I'd pick up their <laughs> PC laptop and it'd go, <laughs> the whole thing was like falling to pieces. You know, you could hear the plastic breaking and stretching yeah, and all of that. And said, because they're crying because they run Windows. They're, exactly, they're suffering. exactly. Yeah. And they're, they're put together with cheap plastic bits, you know, and this thing <laughs> yeah. was just gorgeous. So yeah. to hear a MacBook creak is really jarring and unnerving mm. because you don't expect it but i think it's just because i've knocked it about my bag over years it's just been so brilliant for me that the reason i would replace it is primarily i think the screen but second because it is beginning to fall to pieces but from a performance perspective very hard to justify very hard so you're not going to get one i will <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> i will at some point just not but right not now just yet yeah there'll so, come a breaking point so let's like last time we spent a lot of time talking about development hardware, you know, like what people are using to develop on. But there is a there is another part of this which is a the dev kits, which are console dev kits. Um what is a console dev kit? Oh, that's really easy. Um a console dev kit, just about any dev kit, it's basically a piece of hardware that acts as a target for software that's in development. That's it. I mean, there there are a million ways you can expand on that, and we probably will during this show. But essentially, that's all it is. It's a bit of hardware mm -hmm. that acts as a target for software that's currently in development. And like, why do they exist? Like, is it not possible to 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 do this kind of work in another way? Does there need to be a piece of hardware that comes from Sony, a piece of hardware that comes from Microsoft, for people to develop on? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. And people have been asking this for a long time, and so it deserves a thorough answer. But to really give you a proper answer, we'll have to go back in time a little bit, uh, if you don't mind. Uh, we're going to go back to the early 80s again. <laughs> My favourite era, yeah, when I still had youth and didn't need so much coffee. Uh, hold on, let, let me sit comfortably here. Uh. Just listen to the story again. <laughs> go on, go on, I'm listening. <laughs> so but back in the old days, when I was a lad, we had we we made games on home computers. So you had your Spectrum, you know, you had before that the ZX81, and you had your Atari 400, and Commodore 64, all of those 8-bit machines that had almost no memory and so on. So if you wanted to make a video game, you'd have to load something up from a cassette tape and you'd make a video game and the thing would crash and you'd wait a few minutes and you'd start again and, you know, you might have lost all your work. So the first, um, I guess, use for... Because I'm using the very loosest term. Let's say a, a dev... If we're defining a dev kit as essentially just some target hardware that you use for development, in the old days, your target hardware was actually your development machine, right? Mm-hmm. So I guess the question, the real question is, when we moved away from that, when we separated the development machine from the target machine, when we did that, the question is, why then did we need a dev kit? And what makes a dev kit different and, and special? So the, the first thing really is, certainly for consoles, it's about security. Because... If you think about it, a console is a lockdown device. You can't just stick any old content on it and run it. You have to have your, your cartridges or your discs or, you know, whatever uh, distribution medium there's been, even digitally, it has to be secure. 
So you have to run content that is digitally signed. And that signature is always provided by the platform. So it, whether it be PlayStation or Microsoft or Nintendo, they have to sign the content and then they own the distribution mechanism. So if you think about it, if you're able to run any software on a target machine that is representative of, say, a console, that makes it open, right? That makes it less secure in some way. So it's a very scarce device. And it's really important for console manufacturers to ensure that those devices are in secure locations and that they have um, really, really limited access. You know, so very few people should have access to the kit. That's traditionally been the mm -hmm. story. So th that's really why they exist. I mean, the, the main thing is that they, they are a way of creating unsigned content for machines that eventually will be running only signed content. They have other features as well. Um, so, for example, uh, but, but the thing is, this is not just restricted to dev kits, right? Any target machine. You, you could, for example, have more RAM in a target machine than the machine it's eventually designed to run in. And that's useful for debugging. You know, you might want to store loads of symbol tables and so on. Maybe you've got additional profiling hardware, um, like hardware counters that let you accurately measure how fast bits of your program are running. And the more complex the machine, the more complex that, be that becomes. So these things are really important. But really, the, the main reason is, you know, that there's got to be security around it. And that's why they're kind of locked up and very, very hard to get hold of traditionally. That's, that's changed. But because you've got these manufacturers controlling, if you'll pardon the um, slightly communist sounding expression, because they control the means of production through the distribution of cartridges and discs, that's why they've got to be exceptionally secure. How do you get one of these like if you want to make a playstation game how do you get a dev kit it is a lot easier than it used to be i remember when i started at playstation they cost an absolute fortune i mean thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars and euros wow, really? and whatever yeah yeah i mean the the first at the first stage um think there's a point where they were like ten thousand euro for a dev kit what? which is just a crazy amount of money right now why were they so expensive well you know you could argue that engineering um these complex beasts that you know that could be linked through a network and and targeted by more than one person yeah uh, i mean in the early days of the ps3 for example you had a dev kit that was enormous but was so expensive that you could have two people using at the same time, not running content at the same time, but they'd both be sharing it via network. That's how expensive they were. But but yeah, you could say additional engineering cost, you know, because it's a bigger device. You could say, yeah, the debug features and hardware counters. But but really, that's not it. I mean, the main reason they were expensive, I suggest, is to limit the amount of people who would buy them, mm -hmm. to keep out people who weren't serious. And that meant... Mm that very, very few people could get their hands on them because they were so damn expensive. And, you know, if you wanted to create something of good enough quality to get through content approval, because you remember there used to be really heavy content approval. There is, still is to some degree, but it's nowhere near as, um, 
as onerous as it used to be. You had to create really, really good quality games. And to do that cost a lot of money. You know, we've gone over the development cycle and why games are so much more expensive nowadays. But if you think about it, how many developers could afford to build and distribute a game entirely off their own backs, unless they've had phenomenal success themselves before. And, and even in that case, how many of them would want to be publishers? So the thing is, publishers had the money, right? And they would buy the dev kits and they would, um, they would pass those on to their favoured studios to build games that had got concept approval. And, you know, this could be a cost of 100000 200,000 euro in some really exceptional cases just for hardware. And the way it would be distributed is according to reputation, according to brand strength. So, for example, you can bet your bottom dollar that Rockstar would be getting kits really, really early, that Activision mm. would be getting kits really, really early because they're building the franchises that fill the coffers of, well, not just PlayStation, but obviously the respective ip owning companies as well there's a lot of money in those games we're talking about billions in revenue right so of course they're going to see hardware right. in advance to make sure that come the day of launch or very close to launch the game that they're building on prototype hardware ends up being the best it can possibly be so if, in terms of who can get it in the early days very few people are dev, are dev kits only advanced hardware though no 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 i mean dev kits are uh, for example, the one I've got, I, I don't know how much my NDA lets me say, mm -hmm. but, you know, I, I was pretty open about it before. So I guess I'll continue the tradition. Um, my, <laughs> I know, um, I'm going to get slapped, but that's okay. Uh, my, my PS4 dev kit is uh, the, the finished thing. Mm -hmm. And if they, if they let me have one, you can imagine they'd let a lot of people have them. And I guess I could accept some of the responsibility for that because I used to hand them out like candy. But that, you know, that, that's a completely different story. That's the way the distribution of dev kits changed massively. Uh, but yeah, the one I've got is final hardware. But they go through different stages. So, for example, um, uh, really big third-party partners, and of course, obviously, uh, all of the internal studios would get something called uh, an engineering validation t test or an EVT, which is. I guess the first running piece of hardware, maybe some of the graphical features won't be totally there. There'll be some performance issues. You know, it won't be totally stable. The SDK is still in development. Um, and then that will eventually move on to something that's closer to um, a dev kit that resembles the final dev kit called the design validation test. And are these distributed before the hardware is announced or released? Is, is it that kind of this stage? Because games have yeah. to be made at this point, right? Absolutely. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, we're, we're talking, I would imagine, two years um, in, in the cases of the most close partners. Um, wow. But cer certainly the, the, the top first party studios. Uh, it can be up to two years in advance of the actual release of the hardware. What do they look like? Are yeah, they like I'm assuming boxes? this is just like a box of like <laughs> parts or something. <laughs> well, the the first ones are pig ugly. You know, the the EVTs do look like great big boxes. Um, wow. <laughs> you should have seen the the early boxes for the PS2 and the noise they made as well. You mm. know, colossal. So you can imagine twenty of those in a studio. It was just unbearable. You could barely think in the noise. 
Um, PS4 ones were a lot better. They got better and better. I mean, the the uh, the DVTs and the PVTs for the PS4 dev kit were beautiful, very close to final form factor. Certainly okay. the uh, the DVTs and PVTs. To get the advanced stuff, what do you have to prove? I assume that this comes on good relationship only, right? Like to get to get your hands on a dev kit of hardware before the hardware is is like gone on sale, you need to be in in very good stead with the platform owner. What did you notice about the Nintendo Switch third-party partners announcement? That there was no games shown. <laughs> <laughs> well, all the partners, nice right? <laughs> all, the, all the partners were ones that you would expect to see. Yeah. They're all very safe, mm-hmm. right? If you look at the launch lineup for any uh, console, pretty much all of them are, are safe. When I was at PlayStation, which is a long time ago now, and I'm getting used to that, we kind of changed that so that we opened things up to some of the best independent developers as well, earlier than we would otherwise have done. But traditionally, what it takes is a great reputation mm-hmm. and your your keen interest in exploring something new with a partner. You know, yep. if you have a really good account manager, you're keeping them up to date. You know, the account manager will be clued up. Um, and I'm talking about the account manager that works for the platform. They'll be clued up. They know what the third-party partner is working on. They will brief the management. The management will go, hmm, I wonder if this, w- could, this could work on PS55 or whatever, you know? Yeah. And they will then have a discussion at a senior level. And they will discuss marketing and release timing and performance and incentives and so on and then something will happen usually happens as a result of very long-term relationships built on immense trust and obviously uh, a lot of profit as well so shahid in these in these instances where like the the hardware is coming in advance is that a cost to the developer no pretty much uh, all of the prototype hardware is loaned out Right. You only get charged once it gets to a production version. Which makes sense because oh. the favors are being done, right? Like in the first instance, it's like we really need you to make this hardware for our platform because otherwise we have no games when it launches. Sure. And also the fact that you're essentially beta testing the hardware as well. Sure. Yeah, you're doing, you're doing a job in a way, right? Like you're providing bugs and stuff like that. Right. It's like early access for hardware. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. <laughs> I like it. This episode of Remaster is brought to you by Foot Cardigan. Now, I have a few questions for you. Do you, dear listener, want to be known as the best gift giver in the whole wide world? Have you ever wished that the sock fairy would pay you a visit late at night? Do you want your feet to be the envy of everyone you know? Or do you want awesome socks to be delivered to your mailbox every month? If the answer to any of these questions is yes then Foot Cardigan is here to make that happen. Foot Cardigan delivers fun socks every month right to your doorstep. They ensure your feet never have to be seen out in public in plain white socks ever again. And the best part, you don't have to choose what pair you get. Every single month you'll be surprised in the mail with a lovely pair of socks, and surprises are great. 
Starting at just $9 a month, Foot Cardigan socks are a fantastic holiday, birthday, or any day gift. You could just treat your own feet to a subscription as well. If you like, there's no shame in treating yourself. Foot Cardigan has socks for men, women, and kids, and in a bunch of different styles as well. So if you or someone you know are more of a no-show kind of sock wearer, or maybe a little they like a little luxury in their life, Foot Cardigan has socks to keep your feet covered. Quite literally, in fact. I have been a Foot Cardigan subscriber for over a year. Um, when they sponsored us last, I decided to sign up myself, and I love my foot cardigan socks. Every month I get a new pair, and they're always weird and wonderful and wacky, and uh, I like to wear them, so much so that Adina makes me throw out all my old socks now. This is a genuine thing. She's like, I like the new ones that you get. So every month now, you can start throwing out an old pair because you replaced with a lovely pair of foot cardigan socks. So I really do recommend this. I think this is a great little thing. And for just $9 a month, you're going to get something really cool sent to you in the mail. Go to footcardigan.com right now and get more socks for your money. 33% more socks to be exact because all of Foot Cardigan's pay-once subscriptions are on sale for Black Friday. No coupon needed. Go to footcardigan.com for amazing Black Friday deals. And if you're listening to this after Black Friday, just go check them out. They have awesome socks. Go to footcardigan.com. What I want to know, Shahid, is what is it like to create a game on a dev kit? What, what kind of problems do you run into? How, how can you make a game and test it against multiple versions of a dev kit? What's the experience like? It's it's got better over the years, but in the old days, um, I say the old days. I mean, we're we're not looking that far back. Maybe ten years ago, mm-hmm. I'd say pre PS3, um, it was very difficult to set them up. You know, they would have very finicky requirements. You'd have to make sure that the software was configured correctly. Uh, the communication had to be set up really well. But nowadays, they're, they're a lot. I wouldn't say they're quite plug and play. There's still a fair m- amount of configuration to do. They generally require that you develop with a PC as your development machine, and you usually mm, hook them okay. up with um, with Ethernet. So you know you'll have uh, you can either have uh, a direct connection, which is extremely rare nowadays. You'd need um, a crossover Ethernet cable, but what is much more commonly done nowadays is you just stick your uh, development kit on the network and then you give the development kit just like just imagine it's like um, a standard console right that you'd buy in the shops except that you can talk to it and you can send it stuff and you can debug stuff all from your pc that's very much what it's like i mean the configuration mm. is tricky you have to do things like you have to make sure that the uh, SDK is current, that the firmware is current. So the SDK needs to be updated on the PC side. Uh, the firmware needs to be updated on the dev kit side. You have a bunch of um, additional menu options as well, which you don't normally get on a standard PS4 that enable debugging and extra debugging features. You know, it's like it's like an uber cool version of mm. a standard it's like console. The power user version of a console. Extreme power <laughs> user <laughs> version. Yeah. yeah. Nice. I like that. Okay. And then what what is it like to play your game? Do you actually call that playing a game or testing yeah. a game? What yeah, is it yeah. like? You play it's, the it's game. It's both. It's both. I mean, you're, you know, you're, you're, we call it play testing, right? Mm-hmm. So you have different types of testing. You have functional testing. Um, you have play testing. 
uh, you have um, TRC or TCR, which is conforming to whatever uh, brand guidelines and technical guidelines that the various platform holders have. All of that is effectively a kind of brand compliance. But yeah, you, you know, you're playtesting on that. I've been working on uh, a game and I've been playtesting it on PSVR and you are doing that pretty much constantly. And one of the things that's really good about having a separate dev kit compared to doing everything on your development machine is that when you do crash your software, uh, a good dev kit won't crash. You know, it will let you take the software down and you just carry on. You start again, you you squirt another build down and, and off you go. Mm. So it's it's a nice iterative process. It's not as fast as it was in the old days, but software is so much more complex now. That's a miracle it can get done in a reasonable amount of time at all. And you've got some interesting stuff happening as well in in development. So you've got, for example, Unity are doing this thing called Cloud Build. They don't offer it for consoles yet, but it would be nice if they did. And basically what that is, is whenever you update your project and you push it to um, to some repository that's online, like, say, GitHub or Bitbucket, mm-hmm. what you do is you attach Unity Cloud, Cloud Build to your repository and it will build it on one of their machines on in the cloud. And when it's done, it will let you know. And then you can pull it to the target device and run it. Now, that's not so great for iteration. But let's say, for example, you're a developer who's working on multiple hardware. You know, you've got seven, eight, nine, ten different versions of something to do. Every time you make a change, you want, you want to make sure that's still running on everything. And your testers could easily pull the version down. So here's where it's important to understand uh, a little distinction. Because there are actually two types of dev kit. There's a standard dev kit, which is what developers use, but there is also what's known as a test kit or a debug kit, which physically looks much more like the final uh, console or the retail console than development kits or development hardware do. And they have much more limited functionality. And they're usually given to testers or localizers, people involved in the the DevOps stage of uh, production, you know, that right at the end to test stuff out, to uh, test localization builds and, and so on. And very few people have access to those, but far fewer have access to dev kits. And one mm. of the interesting things is the categories of people who are allowed to use these test kits still has, hasn't really kept pace with how video games have changed. So you would imagine it would be really cool. Let's say, for example, you're a developer making a game for a PlayStation or uh, an Xbox or whatever, and you would like a YouTuber to cover your game. Well, at the moment, there's no way to do that because at the moment, YouTubers aren't allowed to have a test kit, which is a real shame. My guess is that will change at some point, and that's really just a categorization issue. But all of this relates to the paranoia around security for good reason. Because you you can imagine if one of these things gets into the wrong hands, hackers, for example, they're going to be able to reverse engineer what's going on. And, and that's it. You know, the whole security of the entire ecosystem is affected. And therefore, the viability of the market for publishers is also affected. A lot of people get affected if one of these pieces of hardware gets compromised in any way. 
How are security measures implemented then, especially in the instance where the hardware is pre-release? That's a great question. Um, the security requirements are very stringent. All of us have heard about how tight um, Apple likes security to be around their their pre-release products. Well, the same is true of uh, hardware manufacturers who make consoles as well, because obviously we're talking about huge markets and you don't want these things to get into the wrong hands, particularly hackers. So I've seen situations where a developer has a completely separate room that is only accessible via keycard to a very small group of of people, you know, kind of like a skunk works, mm -hmm. who have access on the network to a special directory that nobody else has access to. And all of the hardware is under lock and key in this secure room. So depending on how far back people have hardware, um, security is increasingly important. So I'm assuming that like the platform vendor will ensure like the security audits and checklists and all of this stuff has to be guaranteed and confirmed, that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. You know, the representatives from the platform holder will go and visit the developer to make sure that all of these measures are in place. Yep. So, Shahid, um, can you tell us a funny or weird or interesting story about dev kits? Just pick one, because you must have played with a, a lot of these things, right? And there must have been something that you remember more strongly than, than, other, than other dev kits. It just seems so fascinating <laughs> to work with this stuff. So just pick one story. Okay. So these things, especially in the early days um, of the release cycle, that's mm -hmm. either pre-release or post-release, have a mystique about them. You know, people yes. are talking about dev kits left, right, and center. You know, what are yes. these mythical beasts, right? So they treat them with reverence. They're treated uh -huh. really, really well, you know? Now, when PS3 came out, uh, I, I'd been at PlayStation a very, very short amount of time. I think mm -hmm. it was about a year, maybe, before it came out. I wanted independent developers to be able to get a PS3 dev kit on loan because they couldn't afford it. You know, we're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of euro. But I thought, now that we've got this PlayStation network, why can't we, if they can pass the content bar, why can't we have some smaller independent developers um, get access to these kits? So I, I set up this kind of bureaucratic process called the kit injection program and had all these bullshit criteria <laughs> right but i just had to make up some form it is probably the greatest word document i ever made had drop downs and you know all of that stuff uh pre-populated fields you know the kind of thing right and it looked great it had an impact font it had beautiful tasteful light blue backgrounds and so on all of this box right just to make it look more corporate but basically the idea was this if this gets if this lets me get uh, dev kit into the hands of a decent independent developer it'll have been worth it so i did it came up with this program had these bullshit criteria which of course i was in charge of and there was this one developer i really wanted to loan the kit to because i thought they they would be really really cool on playstation so i met them um we we had lunch and and at the end of that lunch i said yeah yeah no problem we'll loan you a kit and they were 
over the moon. They were ecstatic. This is like they'd won the lottery, right? Because suddenly they're getting this, I don't know, $5,000 piece of hardware. Mm. And I'm just going to loan it to them. You know, I'd already made up my mind I was going to loan it to them. But, you know, we went through lunch anyway. So when I visited them, here's the interesting thing. You're supposed to have a static IP um, address if you want to use these things. So they had to get all of that stuff sorted. And the, the way I got around the system was I said, listen, I know you haven't got a static IP address, but whenever your IP address changes, let me know and I'll change it on the system. <laughs> okay. So they, they just wiped their brown. Oh, thank God for that. And then um, the first time I visited them for progress was at one of the developers' houses. And it's like this, this small house, really neat, um, but small house. And there I found the dev kit underneath a chest of drawers. The chest of drawers was standing on the oh desk. No. <laughs> it was be being used to prop up no. a chest of drawers. No. <laughs> My God, Why how were the they mighty doing have fallen. <laughs> because it's the only place to put it. It was a small place. Was it in use? Yeah, yeah. It was in use. It was connected to the telly. And, you know, these things were built like brick, <clears throat> you know, outhouses. Yeah. And, and so they could take a, a lot of abuse. And uh, this one clearly was was getting abused, um, but but used very well. And they did actually ship a game, and it was a good game. Can't tell you what it was, I'm afraid. Don't want to embarrass the developer. Wow. Oh I mean, I, I I always wonder, like when I uh, sometimes when I when I was buying video game magazines, uh, sometimes you you would see the 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 photo of a dev kit. I think I remember seeing photos of the PlayStation Two dev kits. It was like 15 years ago or something. Uh, there was always some kind of mystery about them. And and I feel like it's gotten... Uh, this idea, this mystery has gotten more popular since the advent of Twitter or, you know, since the switch from magazines to blogs. Uh, it seems to me like there's a lot more people leaking information to the press. Um have you ever had to deal with this kind of problem with people, you know, going to forum boards, going to Twitter, going to, you know, to the press and spilling out secrets? Uh, how and also how much can be revealed about the final product just from the dev kit? The the final software product. Yeah, let's say software. Okay, so to cover your first point yes that mm. was a problem it became more of a okay. problem later uh towards yeah. the last few years of my time at playstation as we began to open up access to uh to the company sure but in the early days it was much more controlled so it was much more infrequent and when it happened there would be a correspondingly tough conversation to be had it was very infrequent to begin with but yeah you you did have to come down pretty heavy because you know you sign a legal agreement okay and everyone thinks yeah yeah the agreement you know one, one of the things i used to say quite often was the agreement is not the deal the relationship is a deal right well okay fair enough but if you run completely roughshod over the agreement the spirit and the letter well you're damaging the relationship and yeah, so yeah. very few people would take that risk right very few people would take that risk. They took agreement seriously. So when we cracked down on them, they understood. And 
usually what would happen is the MD would issue a reprimand, increase security, and people would button up and so on. But later on, what started to happen was as we opened the ki kits up, um, when I say open the kits up, I mean access to the kits. Um, I, I remember having a conversation with uh, my VP. And he said, what happens when things go wrong? What's our recourse? And I said, well, really, all that we've got is we just don't work with them again. And he completely accepted that. He said, yep, that's fair enough. Because think about it. Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to damage your relationship with a platform holder to the point where they were not willing to work with you again? So if you've got that, that's much more powerful. That whole thing about trust and a mm -hmm. relationship and mutual respect, that ends up being really powerful and acts as a substitute to all the other formal stuff that was so, you know, so stiff and, and really ultimately pointless because people didn't want to mess with PlayStation uh, a long time ago. And in the end, we just made it a lot more, um, a lot more equal, I think, a lot more about mutual respect. And I think that worked a lot better. So looking at where we are right now, there's more hardware than there used to be because as well as consoles, we now have VR headsets. Are VR headsets and, and, and the like changing the way that dev kits are working? Well, they're changing the way development happens. And the reason is that development at the moment is a two-dimensional activity which is completely different to the experience of VR, which is a truly three-dimensional activity. And it's the first time that's happened. If you go back decades, all the way up to very, very recently, it's always been the case that whether you developed directly on your target machine or whether you developed on a development machine, the end result was going to be a two-dimensional representation. All right, it could be a 3D game, but, you know, 3D is all is all faked, as you know, on a 2D screen. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the big difference now is you're using a 2D screen to create content for a 3D screen. So that's problematic because if you're a developer and you're working on one screen, suddenly you've got to put on this headset to see what's going on. So what's happening now is that more and more companies, particularly the middleware and engine companies, companies like Epic, who make Unreal, and Unity, are creating editors that work within the VR world itself. So you can put the headset on and actually use the editor from within VR. And that is radically changing development. I mean, it's too early at the moment to say how well that's going to work or whether it's going to be pervasive because people still have to familiarize themselves with wearing a headset for long periods of time. Let's face it, there are developers out there who will work 16 hours a day in front of a screen. I've been guilty of that on more than one occasion and sometimes even longer. Um, now, if you were to do that in a VR headset, we just don't know what that's going to feel like. We just don't know how comfortable that will be. And if you make an error, you know, here's the problem. If you make a development error in VR as a developer and it makes you uncomfortable or sick or gives you a headache, well, you're out of the game for two or three hours. So there are a lot of variables that have to be overcome in in this new field and i think it's early days but there are definitely steps being taken to try and move development over from 2d to 3d 